Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and my guest is the returning David Hill, who you hear every week, not his voice, but his soundtrack to the show, his music. David, thank you for joining me. I thought you could at least have said my esteemed guest. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, David, I esteem you. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Happy to be back. So I've asked you to come back on uh, the show because I've got this project. I, I recorded an, an episode, Batman versus Anarchism. I'm hoping to turn it into a book uh, eventually. And I've got this idea drawn from David Graver. I have no ideas. I just have David Graver's ideas. That the, I mean, I think really Batman after Frank Miller uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns in the 80s, but especially the Nolan Batman, that Batman is at war with anarchism, which is to say, and I, I get pretty Freudian about it, right? That like uh, anarchism is the id that Batman is repressing. So what do we know about Batman? He works outside of the legal system. He's violent. He wears a black mask. I mean, he is an anarchist. And we'll talk about how in the film Batman Begins, which is the specific text we're here to talk about today, this is represented. But Batman is a very special kind of anarchist. He is an anarchist who works not against the system, but for the system. He is uh, an anarchist for law and order. And I think, again, following Graeber, this is an incoherence, this doesn't work. And so all of Nolan's films in this Freudian way work to like suppress this truth that they cannot acknowledge that Batman is an anarchist. And it's his, it's his anarchic nature, it's his, um, let's see, it's his rebellion against norms that makes Batman so thrilling and exciting. But if Batman is actually an anarchist, then Warner Brothers, HBO Max, Discovery, Christopher Nolan, and in fact, all of the pinnacles of American society are in favor of anarchism, and that shall not stand. So there has to be a way in which we can have the appeal of anarchism in Batman, and yet that uh, anarchism of Batman is denied ultimately by the film. So that's my idea. Obviously, you've heard this before, throwing it out there, first responses. Yeah, I, I like it. I think that when, I mean, when you talk about him being the id, um, and he's, I mean, he's, he's trying to repress, like, that part of him that you define as his anarchic nature, um, it, it makes sense to me because there are, like we talked about before, like, there are, there are parts of, of these films where the, it's almost like they're paying lip service to you know, whether it's corporatism or Batman talking about, or like someone telling Batman, like, you know, you have to keep giving money to these orphanages and helping these kids out and, you know, promoting a better society. And then it's more than just some rigid understanding of law and order um, that you should be working towards. Like that stuff is there, but it's not really, it's not really developed. It's definitely kept behind the scenes. To, to what degree it's something that's repressed, like in a Freudian way, that's that's interesting to me because I hadn't thought about it in that in those terms, um, 
but yeah, I, I like your idea and I'm looking forward to kind of delving into these movies with you to explore it. And like we said before, to explore kind of the more like film, you know, the just the, the aesthetics of film. Both of us love film and have done so for a long time. Both of us have taught it. And, and I think to explore that side of things, which Graber doesn't really get at too much um, as, a, as a kind of compliment to talking about the, the politics of it, um, I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. Yeah, I guess, you know, before we even get to Batman Begins, you bring up the key complaint about Batman, which I think is a valid one. Every once in a while, and uh, the most recent Batman film, I think it's called The Batman, you get discussions of like Bruce Wayne's economic impact and the status of Bruce Wayne as a billionaire. There's a tiny bit of it in Batman Begins as well. But this is the first thing to just say, like, Batman's appeal is just ideologically utterly incoherent. The The reason why we have poverty is because we have rich people. I mean, Kropotkin says that. Uh, Jack London says that. It's very, it's very clear. Like, wealth is the denial of other people enough resources to live on. And so the idea that Batman is out fighting criminals who we know, and, and the film is, Batman Begins is pretty explicit. These criminals exist because the economy is bad. And so the, the idea that a billionaire solution to poverty is to punch poor people who have been driven to violence due to their hunger, as opposed to stopping being a billionaire that right there just gets to the ideological incoherence of the batman project but but yeah i mean the other thing too kind of that, that links to that is that the 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 villains in these movies in almost all of them they're so exuberant and they're they're just they, the things that they say it's so easy to be persuaded by them um and even like the even the, the villains that aren't at the status of like Bane or Scarecrow or the Joker, like the crime boss in Batman Begins, like even even he is, I mean, he, he's, he's telling Bruce Wayne, like you never tasted desperation. Like the, the thing that he has become is, you know, a crime boss and a ruthless one at that. It still does speak to kind of the, those social problems that you're talking about and economic problems that you're talking about. Um, which again is is just to say that 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 subtext is always kind of there, but it definitely is not, you know, presented in a full throated way throughout the movies. Yeah, I mean, I'm very conscious of the fact that we need to get to aesthetics since now you've promised the listeners that we'll talk about film aesthetics. But I am really struck by to jump ahead in the in in the film's narrative. We haven't even started talking about the film yet, but one of the things that happens is. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, this is kind of the ex explanation for why um, the reason why Bruce's parents get murdered in this film is because of this depression. Like the guy who kills them is clearly just like hard up and on the street and has fallen on hard times because there's some sort of grim super depression that's striking Gotham. And again, this to me just seems like this ideological. I mean, everywhere I look, I see Nolan possibly inadvertently covering his ideological tracks. So it seems obvious that as like the left winger, you want to raise your hand and say, see, 
it's it's actually Wayne's fault. Like billionaires are the ones that have wrecked the economy for everyone, and his death is in fact his own fault. But then we find out that he is a a, a good-hearted New Deal style businessman who did everything he could to give back to the city. And gosh darn it, it was those anarchists in the League of Shadows who actually caused this depression. <laughs> It's this good-hearted billionaire did everything he could, but these evil anarchists took money away from the poor. Shame, shame. Uh, Liam Neeson. It was Liam Neeson who did it. Yeah, Liam. Liam Neeson did it, and he's like, "We destroyed Rome as well." This idea that there's a group of anarcho. There's like an anarcho-nihilist group that has destroyed every major city for the past 2,000 years. And it's not even really clear why. Why are they doing this? Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things, though, that I really liked about um, Raza Ghul and like the, what, they, what they supposedly stand for. I mean, it, I think it may purposefully not be expressed very articulately or clearly in the film. Because they're just like, yeah, the society's corrupt. It's got to go. We have no plan for what we want to put in place. But every time a society becomes too decadent, we step in and we do our thing. And that's that's what we stand for. <laughs> there's, there's no that, that doesn't make much sense if you don't have a trajectory or something that you're aiming for it's for society society to be to be less corrupt. But the but the fact that they they discuss it in those terms, like you're you're probably aware of this. Um, since I mean, since maybe like. 2016, I became aware of people starting to make arguments about American empire and just saying like there are certain links between American and the Roman empire and society becoming more decadent and the armed forces become made up more and more of mercenaries as opposed to citizens. And there are lots of other kind of parallels that people draw between those two empires. And for most people, I think it's probably, it's not it's not a very persuasive argument, but for some people it is. And it has, I see that argument come up every now and then more and more so since around 2016. And it probably, you know, predates that. I just wasn't really looking for it or, or aware of it. Um, but nevertheless, the, the movie does kind of have its finger on the pulse of, of that question of empire. Um, but again, just like everything else we're saying, it's not, it's not cohesive, it's not clear. Um, it's not presented in such a way for there to be kind of like a substantive critique of it, which, I mean, you know, why would there in the end, like you probably have executives that are approving this film and giving Nolan a very young director at the time, 35 years old, is a chance to establish himself. And maybe there are people on the board of Warner Brothers or whoever made the film that are like, yeah, we want a really hard hitting, you know, expose of society kind of thing. But maybe there's someone above that person that says, no, we want to sell a lot of tickets and we want to see Katie Holmes's face and um, what's the guy's name? Christian Bale. Christian Bale's face. And we want star power and we want big explosions and car chases and Batmobiles and all of this. Um, and maybe that's kind of the overriding factor, which I, I understand. I understand that. Like you want to make a big blockbuster. Um, and the the kind of more critical elements of the film just sort of fall by the wayside. But but it is there to discuss, and for viewers that are interested in it, there is something that you can walk out of the movie theater and kind of talk about in those terms. <clears throat> I think. Yeah, that that reminds me. You know, you sent me the 
Ebert review of this movie, and he says that Razal Ghul's plan is discussed like with more detail than clarity, which I thought was a really good line. Like, what they're going to do is explained in depth wh why they're doing it and how it's going to restore civilization. Like, yeah. Again, if I'm if I'm sticking you know to my guns really closely with this like anarchist argument, the the argument is that much of the audience would be sympathetic to the League of Shadows if they out you know if, if the film actually got into the ideology and the League of Shadows were portrayed in a more sympathetic light. Like if instead of just like, uh, oh, we hate civilizational decadence, it was something more like the wealthy have taken the wealth of this country and used it to fund wars overseas. You can imagine the audience being like, yeah, go Raz al Ghul. So he can't say the kinds of things that Noam Chomsky would say because when Noam Chomsky says those things, a large part of the audience would be nodding along and be like, "Yeah, that makes sense." It's like, "Yeah, we we fight decadence with terror." It's like, "Yeah, that seems." <laughs> and so Graeber's argument, and I'm convinced by this, is that these people are more or less anarchists. He Graeber mentions Zerzan, who is you know was like a friend of the Unabomber, this like destroy civilization through violence type thinker, but they don't actually provide the coherent explanations that yeah, I mean even the Unabomber makes more sense than these guys so I was kind of wondering I thought this is one question I really had for you do you buy Graeber's argument that the League of Shadows is a you know anarcho-nihilist organization um well I'm certainly not as as well versed in what that would mean as you are um what you just said I I agree with and I find persuasive um I, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like they're, they just want to, just like the Joker, they they want to destroy what they see is is wrong and and corrupt and um, is setting society back in some way, and that there's and that you know beneath that there, you would think that if you dug deep enough there would be some kind of progressive sort of worldview that's, you know, that's the foundation of that belief. Um, so that's, I guess, where the nihilism comes in. That it's not. Nah, it's just. It's just. There, there's no belief there. Yeah. Um, so that that does, you know, that does kind of ring a bell. Makes sense to me. And these guys have been doing this at least since Rome, but they don't have a coherent explanation of why. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on. You have to. At some point, you need to say what, why you're doing what you're doing, and they just never do. Yeah. Okay. So this. Um, this brings us to another like really inconvenient fact. Uh, of this movie, which I think you pointed out to me in some of our initial conversations, is Batman learns a lot of stuff from Ra's al Ghul. He learns, like, he already knows how to fight. He learns how to fight better, misdirection, the skills of the ninja. But the main thing he learns is terrorism. Like, Batman is a terrorist. It's like, the reason why he becomes Batman is to have a symbol in order to frighten people. This is a movie in which the hero is is trained as a terrorist. And it's not like he's trained as a terrorist and then betrays terror. No, he's he describes becoming the bat as his form of terrorism. It's just a movie in which terrorism is deployed against the right people. And only certain kinds of people are allowed to use terrorism. Doesn't that claim? I mean, I guess I guess I'm putting that claim out also to be interrogated by you. 
Yeah, no, no, I, that's, that's my favorite, favorite thing about the movie is how it develops those themes of terror and of fear and of mastering one's fear in a, in a visual way. Um, that's definitely, you know, why I would watch this movie again and why I probably will watch it again in the future at some point. Um, and I think that the, first off, I don't think that you can really dispute the fact of the claim that you made about <clears throat> Batman being a terrorist, being trained in the um, the craft of terror. I don't know what, what the word would be. <laughs> I don't know what word you would use, but but yeah. Anyway, the, he's he's with the League of Shadows, and that's that's basically what what the training is. Like Liam Neeson comes across as this person who's really empathetic and understands Batman or Bruce Wayne's strengths and his weaknesses. He understands that he's governed by anger, and he knows that there's some kind of fear there that he needs to confront and then un unleash his own terror um being motivated by that fear as a way to kind of enhance his you know just his his strength and his i mean his ability to fight bad guys um but anyway there's there's that scene where he, his training is coming to to an end and Liam neeson kind of breathes that hallucinogenic drug into his face so that he's extra disoriented and he's fighting all these ninjas and Liam Neeson is the is the final boss um, that he has to he has to fight and defeat, and Batman is experiencing you know fear and terror, and you have Liam Neeson's voice as a voiceover as he's fighting all these ninjas, and he's and Liam Neeson's like, you need to to bask in the fear of others, you need, you need to you need to you need to feel terror, you need to feel how it disorients or how it distorts. Um, and he's just like like walking him through this this experience of what it means to to feel terror, and and this is what Batman is going to be inspiring in others as a means to control them and defeat them, um, and it's it's not a very long scene. It is action packed, and I feel like it's it's filmed and and edited very nicely. Um, I like that aspect of it, um, but that's what it is. Like that's what Batman is in this version of of the story and um and yeah i don't know like do you the movie was was made, released what 2008 2005 oh okay 2005 so, so yeah we're, like I, I feel like by 2008 people are american citizens anyway are a little bit just disconnected from the so-called war on terror but maybe 2005 it's more of a relevant topic um yeah so i think so and i can imagine that you know of course the film must have started rolling in 2003 probably at the absolute latest yeah something that um if we keep doing these conversations which i'm hoping to do is you know there's a there in in the dark night uh which i think comes out in 2008 it might be 2009 there's very explicit war on terror references really their cell phone wiretapping and that's when that's when that was like in in the news so we got some ripped from the headline stuff here. But this film, absolutely, it asks us to see that a, a terrorist is the good guy. And, but there's also, and again, this is, this is my point kind of borrowed from Gravers, there's also a worse terrorist who is the bad guy. And although it seems like you could make this version of the film where the worst enemies are someone, you know, a corrupt judge, a mob boss, a corrupt mayor, that sort of thing. And you could make a very progressive uh, left-wing argument that, like, we need a terrorist to fight um, corruption. 
ultimately in this film, the, the guy that the terrorist Batman defeats is another terrorist. And the city is sort of handed over to a police sergeant. But it's okay because he's a good police sergeant. And he's different from all of the other bad police officers. And all of this seems to me to be, you know, completely ideologically false. Um, the, the violence of the state is bad unless it's being used by the right people. And in fact, terrorist violence is bad unless, you know, the terrorist has mastered his own fear. I, I get a sense, I don't know what you think, that there's something that makes, it's okay that Bruce uses terror not only because he's like this moral exemplar, but because he has tasted and mastered his own terror, which I feel like the scarecrow hasn't, and maybe even Ra's al Ghul hasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really great insight, I think. And it's interesting too, especially the, the last part of it, that Ra's al Ghul hasn't mastered his own because he's the one who's instructing Bruce how to, how to master his. And, and it's a process of reflection for sure, like that scene I just described, it's a, it's a fight scene, but I mean, he's, he's asking him questions and he's, he's kind of analyzing the moment of terror um, with, with Bruce to walk him through it. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty sophisticated thing to do in such a concise scene and to kind of set the stage for, for the final battle um, and for the rest of the movie. But wait, I lost track of what your question was. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, it was about whether, like, so first of all, I don't think we're really told whether or not Roz has has mastered his own terror, but it does seem to me that there's a, like, a trial by fire element to Bruce's training of, Bruce's training as Batman, and it's like he can be trusted with the weapon of of terror because he has experienced it and emerged on the other side. It's very clear that Scarecrow hasn't experienced it and merely enjoys wielding it against others. It's very clear that for all of his talk, the Tom Wilkinson mob boss who's like, you haven't known fear. It's clear that guy hasn't known fear for a very long time at least. And the first taste he gets of terror, he falls apart. Bruce is the only one who experiences terror and comes out on the other side. And I think that's kind of like the forging of the hero. I don't know if that's one of Joseph Campbell's steps, but it should be. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it seems like there's a really facile analogy to be made with um, just like American exceptionalism that, yeah, you can, you can use terror. You can use torture if you want. Like you're the, you're the best there is buddy. So, you know, do your thing out there. You mastered your fear. Go, go ahead with it. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, <clears throat> Uh, we shouldn't talk about the card counter. That's going to take us too far afield. But uh, <laughs> Paul Schrader's recent film, The Card Counter, is also about American terror, and it's very different. No, no. But to, to come back to this, like you're, I mean, the the point that you're making though is that it, it, you're trying to foreground the fact that Bruce Wayne is a moral exemplar. But at the same time, your your overall argument is undercutting that that he's he's repressing what would truly make him a moral exemplar, which is your understanding of, of anarchism and how that's kind of pushed to the side throughout the film. Yeah, you could, you, yeah, you could not be putting that more, more perfectly. Excellent. Okay, so I want to talk a bit more about film style, um, the aesthetics of the film. You're, you're right that 
one of the most striking elements of this movie is, you know, the scenes in which terror is depicted. Um, and of course, we get to see an image of this Batman whose face is like completely matte black. It's like that's what Batman looks like to to someone whose terror has been unleashed. And I think we're supposed to think this is good, right? Like within the arc of the film, like people being scared of Batman that way. That's 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 what Batman wants. I made an argument to you when we were talking, and I'll try and do it now for a way that works for the listener. So I'm I'm following along from this uh, re remark made by A.O. Scott in a film review of the Haneke film Funny Games. Scott says, it's very common to speak of certain filmmakers as sadists. I don't know how common that is. I first learned about it from that review and haven't seen it too much. But the idea is there are certain filmmakers who use film style to try and be in control of the viewer's emotions and specifically in control in a rather cool and calm way. Like the filmmaker is cool and calm. You can tell that they are stepping back and controlling the viewer's emotions. Hitchcock, for example, is cited. And if you Google Hitchcock sadism, you'll find that Hitchcock was quite cruel to his actors, especially women, especially Tippi Hedren. But that's not what A.O. Scott is talking about. He's talking about sadism for the viewer. The best I ever heard this described, although the word sadism wasn't used, was there's a scene in, uh, in Rosemary's Baby where you're looking through a door and some action is taking place in another room, but it's actually behind a wall. So, uh, you know, behind one of the walls of the door. So you can like see someone's back, but you can't actually see what's happening. And the, I think this was the cinematographer said to Polanski, like, no one's, no one's going to be able to see what's happening. And Polanski said, I know. And then the cinematographer describes like going to a movie and everyone in the theater turns their head to try and see around that doorway because they want to know what's happening but of course they can't see and that this is like Roman Polanski's greatest feat to have anticipated what the audience is going to want to see and to sort of like take control of what they are thinking and feeling and I think that this film I mean Nolan is obsessed with with Hitchcock that's one of his exemplars is an example of what we might call without too much negativity sadism in that it's a film that tells you how to feel that the editing the music the lighting everything is in service of the director trying to take control of your emotions perhaps most prominently the Hans Zimmer score it's booming it's loud it's totally keyed to tell you I mean not not tell you how to feel make you feel a certain way you're unable to resist its rhythms is, is the idea so yeah so before we <clears throat> we get on this road um, I just want to say and I wanted to ask you as well like like we both taught film and I I find it very difficult to talk about style. Um, I don't know. Are, is it? Do you do you share that? I mean, you just talked about it very eloquently, so maybe not. Well, <laughs> so first of all, my dog is barking like crazy. So we'll see how much of this is is usable. Secondly, 
yeah, it's it is very difficult to talk about. The only way I've really found to talk about it, and I'm still not that good at it, is through like a shot by shot analysis. Like I could maybe do it, you know, a shot by shot analysis. You can do it, you know, as a voiceover. You can do it um, maybe as a slideshow with scene with you know so shots, uh, screenshots. The person who's best about this, I think, in the history of writing about cinema is David Boardwell. I learned how to do it insofar as I can do it from him. And it is a is a version of a close reading in which you have to take into account of, you know, the cinematography, which is the placement of the camera, the mise-en-scene, what's on screen, and then the editing, how the things are cut together. And when we're thinking about this, first of all, obviously, the fact that um, Nolan makes, when the characters feel horror, he shows you what they are seeing, and he tries to create these overwhelming images drawn from the language of horror cinema, I would say, and using sometimes quick editing, not really jump scares, but definitely some like uh, really intense visual imagery that's edited in such a way that it's supposed to scare you. That would be exhibit A for me in terms of the like sadistic impact of this film, the controlling nature of it. Okay, good. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's interesting that you say it because there's the, the main scenes that I wanted to talk about are when the citizens of Gotham have all received this hallucinogenic drug and it's, it's causing, it's causing to, um, it's, it makes, it makes it like exaggerate and enhance whatever their worst fear is mm. and whatever they're seeing at the time. And I, I love that. Like it's, it's my favorite part of the movie. Um, but I mean this, this type of like, to me, it is like jump scare um shock editing when when he's he's showing you bruce wayne as a child being um traumatized by falling into the well and seeing all these bats like we come back to that a lot and it's very abrupt when you when they cut to it and you get the 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 sound with with like pristine hollywood expensive clarity of the bats swarming around him so you get that with the hero too and that's kind of like your part of your journey with him uh to identify with him and experience his fears and, and all of this um so that that's kind of one of the more i guess redeeming might be the right word aspects of this style but nevertheless i mean what you're saying is that this this sadism that scott talks about and that you 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 know mentioned it in rosemary's baby that it is sort of like i i don't know if i would go this far but maybe you would say that this is kind of like an anti-democratic authoritarian style of filmmaking First of all, I guess I want to say yes, I would say it is. And then secondly, I want to say like, but I don't uh, I don't attach moral blame to that. If you want to make um if you want to make a work of art that has an authoritarian uh let's say like motif, I'm totally fine with that. Like if if Alfred Hitchcock did not make movies that tried to control the viewer but nevertheless tortured his actors, I would be very upset by that. Whereas if someone doesn't torture their actors and is very nice to them, but makes these films that, you know, attempt to control the viewer, I'm 
I'm fine with that. I don't have a moral objection to it. I have sort of an aesthetic objection to it. I like the idea of a filmmaker who is in in conversation with the viewer or who even, you know, in the case of what can sometimes be called like meta filmmaking and in, in, invites the viewer to to critique the film itself. And of course, in traditional Hollywood filmmaking, you're you're not invited to to do that. You are invited to be absorbed into the film in in Brecht's argument, as opposed to sitting back and absorbing the film. With that said, I still think there's a way that Nolan in particular, and it's it's hard to, I mean, this is where my language of film aesthetics is gonna fail me, although maybe if I try and write this into a chapter, I can do better. Nolan in particular, I think it feels heavy handed, his, his aesthetics do. The music, the palette, you know, if you compare it to something like Tim Burton's Batman, which is of no interest at all to me ideologically. Like it has, it is of no interest in that sense. And while I love that movie, um, is could not be analyzed in the way we're analyzing it now in terms of the politics of Batman. But Tim Burton gives you like a delightful German expressionist, almost like surrealist Batman in which you, the viewer, are kind of in on the joke. And there are moments when Nicholson is, is scary in that movie. And then there's moments where you are invited in this sort of Brechtian way to consider that you are watching a movie that has Jack Nicholson in it and it's ridiculous and fun. I might even use the word campy, although that takes a lot of time to unpack and I don't want to unpack it right now. And I think any hint that you would be laughing at Nolan's movie or like aware of the style and the influences that he's using is the opposite of what he is trying to do. Okay, that, that that was a lot. So feel free to respond no, to any no, of it. I'm I'm really glad that that you explained it that way because you added um, a lot compared to what we talked about when we were preparing for this. And the reason why I asked you is because so that you can express the fact that it's not moralizing. It's it's a matter of taste. It's right. a matter of of aesthetics and of taste in films and of style, which is important. So the the final thing that you said that most you know most captivated me is that. In the final analysis, this is a humorless way to make films. And that's that's really important to me too, because having, I mean, having a sense of humor is always one of the first things I look for in art and people and everything really. But there's just like, you're, you're forcing the hand of the, of the person. You're not, it's not like you say, it's not a dialogue with the audience. It's not an invitation. Um, it's a, it's just a, your strong arm in them. Um, just like Batman is doing to the Scarecrow, or however you want to want to put that, and um, and yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's important. I, I think also though, like when you were talking, I, I tried to piece what you were saying in thinking about another Nolan movie, The Prestige, for mm -hmm. instance. And there are sleights of hand in that movie, and there are those kinds of heavy-handed tricks in it. But at the same time, like it's not as forceful and. And so there is, I feel like maybe that has to do with Nolan growing maybe as a filmmaker, 
Although I do have a strong sense that when we talk about the Dark Knight and when we talk about um, the third one, I forget what it's called. Um, Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight Rises, that we're going to be seeing the same thing um, that we're seeing in Batman Begins. Yeah, uh, in fact, I think we see... So he co-wrote this one with uh, David S. Goyer, and the next two, I think he co-wrote only with his brother, and they, they definitely represent more his vision. And there's all of these little blockbuster moments in this one that that interrupt this you know totalitarian vision like there's a, a scene where a guy kind of homelessy guy maybe is like hey man nice car and then he gets scared away when the batmobile shoots a missile and you know bruce trades coats with a homeless guy and he sees that guy a decade later and is like nice coat there's these there's these moments that are in this Shakespearean way, comic relief. Like the humor doesn't flow from the movie's action. It interrupts the movie's action to give you relief. And those completely disappear from this film trilogy. I do not think there is a single, like the Joker is funny, but the Joker is funny in, in the same totalitarian sadistic way that like the scarecrow is scary. And these like, haha, look, I made a, a funny joke. I cut away to an actor making a funny joke and then I'll cut back to the Batmobile. That completely disappears from this trilogy. And not only that, but when they're done in Batman Begins, it's it's definitely, it's like a disruption of the tone of the whole film. Um, it feels so wrong, doesn't it? It feels yeah, yeah. so wrong. Yeah. It's like someone snuck this in. And I I can just imagine the studio editor being like, hey, Americans like jokes, okay? You got to <laughs> make a joke about the coat. You know, it's funny. Homeless people. That's hilarious. Make fun of some homeless people. I, I... But ultimately, what is even more offensive to, to me um, aesthetically about the movie are those scenes, I think there are two of them, where the Hans Zimmer becomes very soft and light and sweet and it's alfred the the um butler and he's like I, i've always believed in you bruce and bruce is like oh you never stop believing in me alfred it's like get the fuck out of here with this bullshit yeah i mean that's another way that these films can can cheat which is with you know which is with the charisma of an actor you know i don't know what what how alfred's role was was written but just michael kane is one of the most charismatic people to have ever appeared on screen and i just think there's a way that it's like i mean the script could even say just like and then alfred makes bruce love him and comforts the entire audience like you could just write that and michael kane's like no problem he can <laughs> he can do it and that's you know that's i wouldn't say it's a weakness of the film i would say it's a it's it's a strength um of the film from from nolan's perspective that he's able to get away with that i mean as we're as we're heading towards you know we should be on on the back end of this conversation that's sort of my basic premise is that these movies are really trying to get away with something they are trying to offer us something that is incoherent that is aesthetically coherent uh, and and for that reason thrilling but ideologically incoherent and one of the ways to sell sell an incoherent ideology is 
of course with with showman's tricks which nolan has has lots of tricks and they're they're beautifully deployed and cinema is in some ways a trick so i don't there are people who view tricks as uncinematic i i don't agree with them but also with the charisma of actors and since uh katie since katie holmes is a charisma vacuum which is why she was replaced for mm -hmm. the next film the moments where the film diverges into parody for me is when she talks about her connection to Bruce. Because when Michael Caine is talking about his connection and that music plays, it's just like, yeah, of course. I mean, I'll die for you, Michael Caine. <laughs> uh, but when Katie Holmes is like, oh, I've always loved you, Bruce, but you're not the man you used to be, that's a little alienation effect for me. And, and Nolan obviously figured that out and was like, this... This woman is pulling the audience out of my elaborately constructed fantasy of a terrorist attacking poor people. And I need a different, more talented and charismatic actor to play this role in the future. And of course, in Maggie Gyllenhaal, he gets a much more talented and charismatic actor to shore up his it's good for billionaires to punch poor people message. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt that about the Katie Holmes scenes. And the thing was, like, I, I don't think that she was really that bad. I mean, I think she was definitely, you know, not all that great, but, but, but you could tell, like, this is, this is one of the things that struck me about her scene in the car when she takes him to see Falcone is that the, the actual dialogue like the, the script is, is pretty good. And I mean, it's not anything mind blowing. It's very simple stuff, which he says. She says that your your father would be ashamed of you for wanting to take revenge on this guy that killed him. And I mean, that's that's very simple, but there's there is a kind of depth to that. Um, and it's not it's not delivered in the worst way. But you're definitely aware like this is. I mean, this might be a little bit mean, but this is it's a starlet and she's not all that great of an actor. And, you know, it could have been done better. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I just want to be clear. In cinema history, you see this all the time. You see young people, men and women, who someone is, you know, pushing out at the beginning of a career, and they're just not up for it. And some of them, you know, it can turn out wonderfully. So, like, the recent Ryan Johnson film, The Glass Onion, which I really enjoyed... Kate Hudson is a perfect example of just someone who was in the right place and right time and looked like a star and her career was a complete failure, but she had, you know, the right parents and everything. And in that movie, Kate Hudson is fantastic. People actually have said the same thing about Katie Holmes. I haven't seen her recent stuff, but people say like, actually, you know, like Katie Holmes circa like 2015 is a really good actor. She was just, you know, pushed somewhere that she didn't belong. Uh, an obvious male example is, Leonardo DiCaprio, who uh, I think I like him more than you, but has developed into a great actor. And if you watch Titanic or The Beach, his just early pretty movies, he's just, he's terrible. He's just a face that a producer is trying to make something. And obviously someone like Michael Caine is the, I mean, this movie is so loaded with talent that like uh, Rutger Hauer only has like three or four lines. We're talking Rutger Hauer here, but, uh, and yeah, she's not terrible in it, but she every other actor in this entire film is is a ringer. I want to say Raz al Ghul, the like fake Raz al Ghul, is played by Ken Watanabe, 
aka the the most prominent Japanese actor since Toshiro Mifune. He gets like one scene. Yeah. And, and and I I don't know the story of how Katie Holmes ends up in this milieu of absolute, extremely overqualified actors, top to bottom. That's now I'm just off. I'm just doing one of my film guy rants, but I'm, I did it. But you, you're right about one thing. It is certainly a milieu. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wish I knew how to pronounce that word, but it's so fun to I I don't know how to pronounce it either. Probably just mispronounce (laughs) it. But but anyway, I I feel like this is, um, I mean, there's so much more that we can say about this movie and about your your main argument, but but I feel like maybe we should end this and start setting the stage for for the next one. Um, How do you feel like is is an appropriate topic to, to end this discussion? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say one way to end it is to talk about what we didn't get to honestly except for a a a deeper dive into the aesthetics i thought we hit everything except for like some of the corporate stuff in in the background like there's corporate stuff this is where rucker hauer comes in and again morgan freeman talk about an overqualified actor in a in a relatively small part um that's fine. I, I don't think the film is actually very interested in the corporate stuff, and I don't think there's that kind of id, those those uh, ideologies, you know, roiling the surface from below. I guess all I want to say is, you know, kind of another restatement again, as I'm hoping to work this into a book eventually of uh, of the main idea, which is this movie and Batman stories in general are calling out to the prestige, a work of sleight of hand. Ebert says, of course it doesn't, it's not realistic, but it acts as if it's realistic. And I thought that was a crucial distinction. We can't actually believe that Bruce Wayne could exist. He would be such a tortured mess of, uh, I don't even know what to say. He would be so, his psyche would be so destroyed to be Bruce Wayne that he would in no way be the kind of person who could carry on conversations with um, Alfred and uh, Rachel in that way. But the movie invests these characters and this narrative with gravity and seriousness. My argument, again, and this is Graeber's argument, is what it invests with gravity and and seriousness is a a project that actually cannot ever have gravity and seriousness which is an an anarchist who uses terrorism outside of the justice system in order to protect society and in league with that justice system and everything that i've tried to point out in this that that i view as a problem is an attempt to show look look at what the film is hiding from you it knows the film knows deep in its heart that a billionaire um punching poor people is not a, a a thing that makes sense and is not a thing that should be celebrated 
and yet to be a 21st century 21st century batman blockbuster it must give us that and it is due to nolan's style and his excellence in style that we are carried along with this narrative that we should in fact condemn i don't condemn the film i like the movie but the ideology deserves to be teased out and then condemned yeah yeah i like that and i think that you're right too that it's a at the at the center of the film there's a there's a lot of contradictions and there's you know maybe a, a central contradiction that you highlighted is that it, he's he's working outside of the justice system but he's ultimately serving it um in some capacity and that coming back to to serving the powers that be like he's not a transformative figure and in, in the final analysis i think is crucial and i th- i think it goes back too to the, the corporate stuff because there there was a conscious choice not to develop that and when you see it it's just completely absurd like you have that guy in the boardroom and someone's like Hey, I don't think Mr. Wayne would would have wanted us to corner the market of the defense industry. And the guy's just like, well, Mr. Wayne has been dead for 20 years, so we can do what we want now. And it's like, oh, yeah. so the, the, so 20 years have passed, and that makes it somehow less unsavory to be a war profiteer? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to sharpen this. Is like, this is a movie that's like, you know what's bad? It's bad when bureaucrats run things for the profit motive. But when there's a crazy billionaire with his own idiosyncrasies, that's when the system is working. <laughs> How, try try that up for size in 2023 and see if you're like, you know what's wrong with America's corporate governments? Not enough billionaires pursuing insane projects. If we could just get more insane billionaires, our society would be fine. Rutger Hauer merely wants to make uh money and keep the corporation healthy that's crazy what we need is a terrorist billionaire that'll save america yeah i mean look let's not you know let's not (laughs) mince words here we're living we're living in a pretty dark world right now but hey you throw morgan freeman in the mix offering up all this great tech who knows what can happen (laughs) yeah that's if only that that i think is uh elon's problem that he he didn't have, and now I'm wondering if you know Warren Buffett what what he could do in the bat suit. Um, okay, but, but we just, as, yeah, as, go as ahead. Final word, just to come back to the aesthetics one time. I, I did already mention this, and you know we can just kind of put a pin in it at that. But I did just want to say, like the the experience of terror that the movie portrays visually, and you already talked about this. My, my favorite moment in the entire film is when. Gotham is starting to fall and the hallucinogenic drug has been released. And Batman, you know, he drives his car right into there. He just goes right over this bridge that has been um, lifted or he goes through it. And once he's in there, the all the citizens, the people that he's there to serve, they've all been drugged. And there's a shot where they they see him. And it's a first person perspective from one of the citizens of Gotham. And his his eyes are like fire, and they're, they're, and it, it is it is just the most terrifying shot in the entire movie, and it's just like, and the, the development leading up to that with all of the the Liam Neeson mastering your fear. This is an analytical understanding of what terrorism is. This is what you have to have to master, and all this. It just it struck me as like, it has it has, it has the clarity of like an Edgar Allan Poe short story. Um, I, I think Poe 
um, I, I had a professor at LSU and he wrote a book about Poe and terror and about how Poe is like the first author, the first American author to really understand what, what terror is and to represent it in literature. And I kind of, I had a similar sort of feeling watching this movie um, at how, at how well it was done and, and just enjoying it. Um, it was like, a, like, I wish I had some popcorn, <clears throat> you know, watching that scene. So yeah, that's kind of one of the things I, I wanted to mention earlier, just to get a yeah. minute. In there. I mean, I guess that, you know, that takes me back to the Freudian thing is like, this film can't fucking help itself. <laughs> the one of the most captivating scenes in the entire movie is the citizens of Gotham being terrified of Batman. It's like this this is a movie about a terrorist billionaire and the movie shows us this and makes it very frightening over and over again. And the saving grace is that there is an even worse anarchist. And it is like, you know, that's, I mean, it's like a logical fallacy. It's like, oh, don't look over there. Don't, don't look at the evil anarchist billionaire. What if I gave you an entire society of anarchists? See, that's so much worse. <laughs> yep. Yep. Why do you love terrorism so much, Christopher Nolan? We're here to ask the tough questions. <laughs> Oh no! But I mean, I mean, he's done such a service to movies, like preserving IMAX and all that. <laughs> Look, I think I think Nolan is a great filmmaker. Um, he, he has, his next film is going to be um, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, yeah. I may, maybe I'll have to have you back on the show for that one as well because the it's Scarecrow. What? Scarecrow, yeah. Scarecrow is going to be Oppenheimer. What's what's truly terrifying? It's definitely Batman jumping across a bridge in a lot of my dreams. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know when exactly, but David Hill will be back to discuss. Uh, we're going to do at least one episode on The Dark Knight, but man, we could do 10 episodes on that one. And then, uh, you know, that I guess I need to say first, thank you, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, and Graham, always happy to be here. Always happy to be your esteemed guest. Yes, so... Um, I esteem you, David. Uh, and, you know, the music which you're about to hear, unless David has one more quip, is by David Hill. No more quips. Bye, David. All right. See you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs>